following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 4, verse 17, through chapter 5, verse 1. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee to Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, amen. Well, if you've been with us, we... um we just finished a four-week series on revival. Um, I loved it. I wish we could have spent another four weeks, another eight weeks there. Um, but, but we are moving into this next sermon series. And while we're moving into this next sermon series, we're not yet done longing and praying for revival. And so I just want to encourage you to, to be stoking that flame in your heart for that and asking God to rend the heavens and come down. And now here we are. We're coming out of that, moving into uh, this new sermon series that we're calling Practicing the Way of Jesus, where we're really looking at Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, and what is maybe the most famous and widely acknowledged passages um, of all of Scripture that not just Christians turn to, but there's other religions that look at this and say there's actually something really powerful and insightful here. Um, And as we turn to this new series, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I've mentioned him before in our revival series, he provides this perfect transition for us, and I just want to read you this quote. He says, I've got it up here on the screen. I maintain again that if only every Christian in the church today were living the Sermon on the Mount, the great revival for which we are praying and longing would already have started. Amazing and astounding things should happen. The world would be shocked and men and women would be drawn and attracted to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Man, what a great insight. And so here we go. We're moving from this big picture of revival into what does it look like to live a revived life. Now, our, our, our desire for revival puts us at the feet of Jesus, who is both the source of revival, but also the wisest man to ever live. And, and 
And as we look and sit at the feet of Jesus, we're paying attention, he's preaching literally the best sermon that's ever been preached in the history of humanity. And he's not just after information transfer. He's not just, some, here's some keys, some tips and tricks to help you sort of figure life out, make it a little bit easier for you. He, he's not giving us some sort of empty philosophy to just keep our minds entertained. He's not offering the next wave of dutiful religion. He's not making this sort of bare minimum requirement for the, the kingdom of heaven and putting out just, hey, I just want you to jump over this little bar. That's not what Jesus is doing. See, the Sermon on the Mount is more than platitudes. It's more than a new set of rules. It's more than a gospel of sin management. See, the Sermon on the Mount tells us what it's like to be fully alive to God. The Sermon on the Mount paints a picture of what kingdom life looks like right now. And as we follow Jesus, as we lend our ear toward his teaching and we sit at his feet and have this desire to, to be changed by what he's teaching, Jesus is transforming us into kingdom people. People who are formed and shaped by these ideas, these, these um, to have certain values and goals and this perspective on life. See, Jesus wants to offer us this happy and godly way of living where we can experience and demonstrate human flourishing, that is, living life to its full potential. See, that's the invitation the Sermon of the Mount extends to us. Now, who wouldn't want to live that kind of life? Right? Who, who wouldn't want to take Jesus up on this offer? But there's a problem here. As we come to the Sermon on the Mount, and I was struck by this this week, or the past couple weeks as I've been uh, doing my study and digging into getting ready for this, we really don't understand the depths and the nuance of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, that doesn't mean the Sermon on the Mount is, is beyond our understanding, because for the original audience, it would have been zero-depth entry. Like, they, they would hear Jesus speaking, and they would get it. It would click for them right away. But for us, because of time has elapsed, because culture has shifted, it makes it harder for us to understand what Jesus is saying to its fullest extent. And so to understand, we need to do some context work, which is what we're primarily doing today. We need to do some context work that would allow us to see the nuance and the gravity and the genius of this Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preaches. And when we see this, I'm convinced that not only will we just blown away by this, that we will have this hunger to devote the entirety of our lives to live for Jesus and to live for the kingdom of God. So the easiest way to begin this context work is for us to situate ourselves within Matthew's gospel story. It's the first book of the New Testament. Right, Matthew uh, has done a, a, the church's service here in, in documenting the bulk of Jesus' ministry, and he's sharing this story. But here's the thing. In order to understand Matthew's gospel, we actually have to backtrack even further to understand the Old Testament story here because Matthew is telling part two of a two-part series. There's part one of the Old Testament of what God has been doing since Genesis up until Malachi, and then Matthew picks up 400 years later and continues the story that God's been telling. Now, with obvious risk here of oversimplifying this, this story, the main storyline of the Old Testament, I'm gonna say it like this. The Old Testament's storyline is this. Humans flourish when we live with the grain of God's created order. 
All right, if you, if you are a woodworker, you know this, right? You sand with the grain. That's the way it works best. That's how the, the wood has this integrity maintained. And so we're working with, we're living within the grain of God's created order. And a, a, from Genesis, through Psalms, through the wisdom literature, through the prophets, are all concerned with this idea of human flourishing, that we would live to the, to the max potential that's available to us. And Psalm 1 provides for us an illustration of what it looks like to flourish. It, it, here it is, Psalm 1, verse three, and it gives us illustration of a tree. It says, he, which is talking about the blessed man, the righteous man, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So here we get this picture of this, this lush, green, flourishing tree, all kinds of fruit. It's like, it's like living its best life, okay? This tree is unrestrained. Everything that it could be, it is. And that's the picture that God provides for human flourishing only within the context of humanity, right? That, that it would be a multifaceted flourishing, that spiritually we're flourishing. Physically we're flourishing. Relationally we're flourishing. Mentally we're flourishing. Emotionally, all of the aspects, all of the different facets of humanity, these are the things that we're flourishing in. This whole comprehensive nature is human flourishing. And the Old Testament begins with God making that kind of human flourishing possible. He sets Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? This place where everything seems to be going right. It's, it's an oasis of the kingdom of God. And Adam and Eve, to maintain this, only had to follow one rule. It wasn't complex ethics here. It's like, there's this one tree in the Garden of Eden, all you gotta do is stay away from it. And in doing that, they would acknowledge God as king, right? He was the designer of this creation, so as the designer, he knows how life works best. So all I gotta do is acknowledge his kingship, his rule and his reign, and live my life according to that. And this is how they flourished, and they, they enjoyed that for a while, but all of this was spoiled by Genesis chapter three. There was cosmic treason, cosmic rebellion took place where God's kingship was rejected, where they pushed against it. And when they did that, things started to go poorly. Adam and, G, Adam and Eve reject God's kingship, his rule. Things don't go well. This fallout happens. There's brokenness, misery, corruption, chaos, division. They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And this is not really hard for us to imagine what life like this is like because this is the world that we occupy today. It's the same space. But as Adam and Eve rejected God's kingship and his rule, God was still planning to reestablish his kingdom for his people. And you can see this throughout the Old Testament as God gives rules, these laws, these commands, which are to, to put like some guardrails around humanity in order to let them know this is the highway, this is the pathway to flourishing. And so God puts these up. And, and one of the places where we see this, where God takes Moses up to Mount Sinai, and God gives him the Ten Commandments engraved, the finger of God etches them in stone. And when God's people acknowledge God's rule and his way of life, right, to, to live with the grain, they tend to prosper. They experience this, this flourishing, this blessedness with their life. It's like they, they kind of, they portray the, the image of Psalm chapter one, that they are like a tree 
because they're living with the grain of life. Now, this is, this concept of, of, of a blessed life, of a flourishing life, is hard for us to, to, to understand um, rightly because we live in an incentivized culture, okay? Like, nearly everything that we do, anything that's hard, anything that's maybe not, doesn't come naturally is sort of incentivized for us so, so that we think that, okay, I'll just push through and I'll do whatever it would be so I can get to the other side, which hopefully there's some, some blessing there, right? We have this mindset of, of I'll just get to the payoff at the end, and so we tend to, to stick it out with bad jobs that are actually diminishing our life because, you know, it pays okay. It, for example, think of it like, you know, if I tell my kid they don't want to eat broccoli or put vegetables before them, they don't want to eat broccoli, I say, like, listen, I'll give you a dollar. I'll give you a dollar if you just eat this doggone broccoli, right? I know you've been there, right? I'll give you a dollar to eat this broccoli. And so for the sake of the dollar reward that lies ahead, they're willing to endure the grainy and gritty broccoli and choke it down. And that's what we tend to think of when we, when we come up against God's command. Like, I'll just do it so that on the other side, I can finally get the reward that is for me. So, so we do this. We suck it up and we do it. We obey so we can get the bonus, whether that's heaven or whether that's some sort of kickback or monetary reward later on. And in, in that mentality, the motive for obedience is not, you know, not just the delight of obedience, it's the reward of obedience on the other side, but that is such a, a small view when it comes to our obedience and acknowledging the kingship of Jesus, of God. See, more pressing than the blessing that's on the other side of obedience is, is the, uh, the blessing within obedience. See, just like with broccoli, see, a dollar on the other side of choking down that broccoli is nice, but really, to eat broccoli, it's good for your body, right? You're promoting some sort of health. There's some sort of, uh, from a physical perspective, your body is getting the nutrients and, and, and the, uh, whatever it needs to, to be healthy. And so it is with living with God's law, right? To live within God's law, there is blessing, not just on the other side, but there's blessing within it. It's what leads to our healthy spiritual lives. It's what leads to human flourishing in every dimension. See, this, is, this, this concept of this blessed life of living within the life of blessing is what drives the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. See, that's what Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man. It's not just that he's blessed on the other side of it, but there's actually, as a tree planted by the streams, there's blessing in that interaction. And this is important for us to, to wrap our minds around here because as we move into the, the Beatitudes, that, that's the first word, blessed are those who, blessed are those who. So we gotta understand, it's, it's the blessing within, living within the grain of life, uh, with God's design. Now, there are times where Israel's doing this well. There's a lot more times where they're doing a really poor job at this, right? Moments where, where God's kingdom is rejected. Uh, moments where they say, you know, I, 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 I would rather do things my own way than acknowledge God's kingship over my life and, and redefine what life is like. And in doing so, we miss out on this flourishing life. We miss out on, on the good life. We, we miss out on, on the essence of the, the, the fulfilled and happy life. And in doing so, we feel the sting of the fall. It just, it just compiles some of the brokenness and the futility. Yet God doesn't just write us off as like, fine, have it your way, do your own thing, right, see how that works out for you. God is still promising and he's working towards setting up his kingdom so that he could restore Eden and bring it back to us. 
See, this is where the Old Testament ends with the prophet Malachi. Things are not going well. There, you read the book of Malachi, there's a lot of futility going on. Um, the prophet is saying that the day of the Lord, right, God's reckoning, that God's judgment is going to come, and it's not going to go well for the people who insist on their own way. But those who honor or fear God's name, who revere his kingship and live accordingly, those people will be restored. They'll be healed. And, and as he closes off the Old Testament, Malachi says two things. He says, remember the law of Moses, right? Rem- remember how God tells us life works best to, work, to live within the grain of life. And number two, watch for this prophetic announcement that's gonna come. The person who's going to herald, who's going to be a messenger of the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. So that's where the Old Testament ends, and then goes right into Matthew's gospel in chapter 1. And the first thing we see in Matthew's gospel is a genealogy. Now, most people, if you're doing a Bible reading plan, you come to God, Matthew chapter 1, and you see a bunch of names, and you're like, unless you're looking for a baby name, you're not really paying attention here. Okay, and it's like I'm just going to skip through this, but this is so important because here Matthew is rooting this New Testament narrative, this story, that part two of the big story. He's rooting it within the context of the Old Testament because Matthew is saying, look at the royal lineage of this man named Jesus from Nazareth. He's the son, he's the heir of Abraham. He's the, the son, the heir of David. He has this sort of royal lineage. And so Matthew is pointing to Jesus as this long-awaited king who's going to set up the kingdom of God. He's the one who ushers us into this kingdom of heaven. And if you look at Matthew's gospel, if you read through Matthew's gospel and you just kind of pay attention to some of the key phrases that Matthew uh, is putting out in front of us, Maybe the the primary theme of Matthew's gospel is the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. That's one of the things, over and over again, he uses this language, the kingdom of heaven. Now for a Jewish reader, a Jewish person who's in this first century context, listening to Jesus, hearing what Matthew has to say, chapters one through four of Matthew's gospel would be shocking um, because there are so many things that point to Jesus as the fulfillment of the law as the fulfillment of the prophecy. So you see this, this Abrahamic, this Davidic lineage. Jesus has this unique birth story, right? He's born of a virgin. I don't think that's ever happened before. I know for a fact that's never happened before. Um, the Holy Spirit it has, has conceived this child of God and used Mary to carry him. Jesus, after being born, right? He's born in, in, in the town of David in Bethlehem. Um, after being born in Bethlehem, they flee to Egypt because, well, I'll tell you a little bit, Herod, King Herod wants to kill Jesus, and in doing so, he creates this mass infanticide, terrible. Um, Jesus goes into Egypt, get pulled out of Egypt, right? And all of the time, they're hearing this stuff, and it's like, this sounds like a lot of the narratives of the Old Testament story, right? If you, if you know the Old Testament, there's a lot of parallels here. They see that he's a Nazarene, which was prophesied. He's baptized by John, and he spends 40 days in the wilderness with Satan. Now, now all of this, and, and not only is he spending 40 days in the wilderness with Satan, but he's resisting Satan, doing what our first father, Adam, could not do. Adam and Eve fell to the temptation. Jesus said, no way, Jose, or I don't know, no way, Satan. See, Jesus portrays himself as this new Era, this new man, this new generation, a new era. And we see as Jesus, be, see this happen as Jesus begins his formal ministry right here in Matthew chapter four, verse 17, where he begins to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now he's not saying that it, it's gonna come someday, 
Like someday, far out, I'm just giving you a heads up, it's coming down, down the pipe someday. No, he says, it's at hand. There is, there is a, a immediacy to the, to the presence of the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus, again, I don't know how you announce this other, the kingdom is here, and Jesus is showing himself as this king, and he's calling to himself disciples. Now, at the beginning here, which is read in, in chapter four, we see him calling the first disciples. Eventually, Jesus will call 12 disciples, which mirrors the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus here is setting up some sort of a kingdom. And so he starts preaching about the kingdom of God here in verse uh, 23 of chapter four. He says, and he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel. So this is predominantly Jewish country here, claim, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So Jesus is not only proclaiming that the kingdom is at hand, right? And here's what it looks like. Here's what you have to look forward to. Jesus is demonstrating what the kingdom is. We see the kingdom breaking through in these little vignettes. And it's both a spiritual and physical kingdom. See, if it were just a spiritual kingdom, Jesus wouldn't bother himself with healing people. Jesus would just let, you know, hey, don't worry about that. You know, eternity's coming and you won't have to worry. Jesus is healing people. There's a physical and a spiritual nature to this kingdom. And so the Jewish people are sitting back, if they're, if they're aware at all, and, and we have reason to believe that, that a lot of people kind of clueless to this, but as we go back and read Matthew's gospel, a lot of Jewish people are thinking, whoa, this Jesus might actually be the king which we were promised who would have this eternal kingdom that would follow after David. And so their interest is piqued in Jesus. They see how he fulfills the prophecies. They see this key theme with Matthew as he talks about the, the fulfillment of prophecy, the, the fulfillment of the law. And Jesus here is talking about the kingdom. And it's not just talk. He's got miracles. He comes performing these, the supernatural kingdom of heaven is breaking through the ordinary. And, and C.S. Lewis has this quote. He says, miracles are retelling in small letters of the very same story which is written across the whole world in letters too large for some of us to see. So the story, this big story that God is telling, right, these miracles are, are pointing to this big story that sometimes we, we're up too close, we can't see the whole thing. These miracles are the kingdom breaking through the ordinary. And Jesus displays these traits of an Old Testament king. See, there was sort of a, a prototype for the kings of Israel, that, that they would be uh, wise, that they'd have some sort of insight. Uh, for example, David and, and Solomon were some of the two wisest men, kings of Israel. That the, the kings would also demonstrate this power, this authority. And so people are looking at Jesus, they, they see these traits, and people are curious if the promises of the Old Testament are actually coming true right before their eyes. But here's what we need to see. It's not just the Jews who have a peaked interest in this Jesus as he comes on the scene. We see in verse 24, the fame of Jesus spreads beyond the Jews into the Gentiles. We see verse 24 of Matthew 4. So his fame spread throughout all of Syria, which is, is predominantly not Jewish, though there are Jewish people in Syria, but there's also Gentiles. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various disease and pains, oppressed by demons, the epileptics and the paralytics, and Jesus healed them. And great crowds followed him. See, Jesus 
is attracting people of different backgrounds. And this is one of the reasons why we value being a diverse church, right? And the face mask issue is, is surfacing some of this, how diverse we actually are, who you listen to, what, what's your news source, are you, maybe you're immunocomp, whatever it is. See, this is the diversity that Jesus has in his kingdom, different people from different backgrounds. And he's specifically drawing people who are sort of immersed in this Greco-Roman uh, mindset, this culture, because Jesus is standing here in a, in a unique moment of time where it's the intersection of Jewish people and all of their, all of their Old Testament prophecies, all of the wisdom literature that, that points them to this blessed life, this flourishing life within God's domain, under God's leadership, and the other intersection is that of Roman culture, which is highly, philosophical, highly, highly philosophicalized, is that a word? So there are things about Jesus that are striking to different people for different reasons. So for example, as, as people from a Greco-Roman background would hear about Jesus' lineage, they would have some sort of, they would think that the Roman kingdom is being threatened because Jesus is actually making a, a claim to be of royal lineage. This is why Herod went after him. This is why Herod, uh, when, when the wise men came and asked Herod, where is this new king of the Jews? Herod was irate. Then people from a Greco-Roman background, they see Jesus' baptism and, and where the Jews see it as a baptism of re repentance, turning away from our foolish ways, our sinful ways, and turning back towards God, the, the Greco-Roman people could see the baptism of Jesus as sort of an anointing for his kingship, right? Like they would anoint a king. And as Jesus was anointed, his kingship begins. He goes into this 40-day 40 stint, 40 stint with the devil in the wilderness. And it's just like it would mirror a king whose authority, whose power is being tested, right? He's going to war. The king is being war tested. And Jesus walks away. And so they're thinking, whoa, he's been anointed. He's proven his power over the enemy. Now Jesus, he does something kind of unique here. See, instead of, instead of um, having the, well, as Jesus is at the intersection here, he's drawn people, different people to himself. We see this as a large crowd is gathered in verse 25. Now as Jesus is amassing this, this crowd of people, um, they're probably anticipating that Jesus is gonna like put an army together, that he's, he's, gonna, he's gonna start fighting, forcing his way through, but none of that happens. None of that happens. To the shock of many, Jesus doesn't attack. Jesus doesn't go after the Roman um, kingship Instead, Jesus takes his followers up on the hillside. See, Jesus, in verse one of chapter five, he says he sees the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and he sat down, and his disciples came to him. See, Jesus opens his mouth, and he starts teaching. Now, this would be in the vein of Aristotle, who is around before Jesus had made his arrival. This would have been in the vein of, of the Jewish prophets who would share these wisdom pieces with their followers. Jesus is philosophizing. Jesus is providing us wisdom about the good life, things that both um, the, the Jewish world and the Greco-Roman world would be concerned with. And this philosophy orbits around the search for true happiness and true goodness. And it's not just this momentarily idea of happiness. This is a, a deep fulfillment, an overall satisfaction with life. And to think along these lines, as you see the Greco-Roman philosophizers, this, this concept, this search, 
had a lot to do. There was a moral tint to it. Because this good life is associated, it, it can only be attained by virtue. And asking these questions, who are we? Who must we become? And how do we get there? And so there, there's this philosophizing that's happened. So the, there's this overlap between the Romans, the Jews, with this concern for human flourishing and the good life, and Jesus is stepping right into it. And this is precisely what Jesus addresses on the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the guys, Jonathan Pennington, who has written an incredibly helpful but incredibly difficult um, commentary, says this. He says, the Sermon on the Mount is offering Jesus' answer to the great question of human flourishing. The topic at the core of both the Jewish wisdom literature and that of the Greco-Roman virtue perspective while presenting Jesus himself as the true philosopher king. See, Jesus is setting, he says, listen, you want to know the good life? You want to know what it's like to flourish? Look at me. But don't you see, that's what we're after too. We, we want to know how to live the good life. We want to have a fulfilling life. No, nobody wants to go to the grave and on their tombstone and say, man, he left a lot on the table. It could have been more, right? We want to have that full life. But we tend to be far too easily pleased. We settle for this wimpy version of happiness instead of this deep, soul-satisfying fulfillment because it tends to be easier. It's easier to just get a, a cheap thrill. It's easier to, to kind of like, you know, Assage our, our, our momentarily pe pleasure than it is to really get deep into this mindset of what does it mean? Who am I? How do I become? Or who am I? Who must I be? And how do I become that? And in turn, we become cynical. We, we wonder, listen, is this, is this fulfilled life even possible? Can we even attain it? Because what we found out that any sort of attempt that happens outside of Jesus leaves us burned out, it leaves us frustrated. Or the other thing we do, if we don't just push it away, to make this concept of human flourishing more, more accessible, we reduce its definition. We, we sort of compartmentalize. Well, we think of human flourishing would just be to have a healthy body. Human flourishing would be just to have a healthy marriage or to, to have this you know, really rewarding job. And so we, we sort of break it off instead of seeing human flourishing as this comprehensive thing that includes all of our life because we can't envision all of those things coming together and really bringing us this fulfillment we hope for. But here's what Jesus is doing. He's introducing us to the fullness of his kingdom. And he's not just saying this kingdom of God is up there. The kingdom of heaven isn't just up there spatially somewhere. He's saying the kingdom of heaven is breaking through right now and right here. It might, it might be hard to see. It might be happening in pockets, but the kingdom is at hand. And what he's doing, he's opening us up to the good life, to find true fulfillment, to have real human flourishing. He's showing us what it looks like to live life with the grain of God's created order. Now, most kings who set up a kingdom would say, listen, you can either comply or be crushed. That, that's their mentality. They're gonna use brute force to get you to fit the mold of whatever their kingdom is going to be like. But that's not what Jesus does. See, Jesus offers an invitation. He invites the unlikely and undeserving people like you and me who really have no business being in the kingdom of God and he invites us at great cost to himself. See, Jesus was the one who, who 
perfectly lived with the grain of life, always acknowledging the kingship of God, doing all that he commanded. And in our place, Jesus was crushed. See, in our place, Jesus was crushed. He was the one who did it all. He should have had this flourishing life, but he chose to give that up so that we could be offered this invitation. What kind of a king does that? What kind of a king is willing to be crushed so his servants, those who are subjected to him, might have this abundant, flourishing life? No other king. Your, your job won't do that. Your boss won't do that. Right? Whatever you set up as number one in your life, whatever's the dominant, this is the narrative your life is gonna follow, it won't do that. It's gonna crush you instead. But Jesus says, listen, I will be crushed for you that you could have this flourishing life. And so the question that it leaves us with is will you accept this invitation? Will you accept this invitation or will you carry on as usual living this diminished life that doesn't actually lead to human flourishing? That that leads to a degraded life. Now, one thing that this Sermon on the Mount is gonna make clear to us that that when, when we talk about accepting the invitation of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. This isn't simply a, a, a punch my ticket to heaven card, right? I'm just gonna say this one prayer and I'm gonna be forgiven of my sins and then you know, the payoff on the other side is that I'm gonna enjoy heaven at some point when Jesus comes back. See, Matthew is expanding our understanding of what salvation is, what it means to be kingdom people. See, Jesus doesn't want to just bring you into heaven. Jesus wants to make you the kind of person who's fit for heaven. If Jesus were to take you right now and drop you into paradise, right, this new heavens, new earth, you would ruin it. Your sinful tendencies, your your hardness of heart, your resistance to the kingship of Jesus would lead to the unraveling all over again. It'd be be Genesis chapter three all over again. But what Jesus is doing in offering us the, the invitation to the kingdom of heaven, he's making us a people who are actually fit, who will actually enjoy the kingdom of heaven. By sitting at Jesus' feet, we are receiving his instructions. We're we're listening as he opens his mouth, as verse two says, as he opens his mouth and he teaches the people. And in order to receive this, there's a couple things. We don't just receive, like it's it's not like we we adopt whatever Jesus says and we get it to sort of mesh what our, our current worldview is, right? To receive what Jesus has to say for us about what the kingdom life looks like means that we're going to have to lay down some of our presuppositions, some of the worldview things, some of the, 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 the assumptions that we make about life and the good life, lay them down and let Jesus redefine them. It means that our politics, we're gonna have to hold them a little bit looser. It means that our philosophy about what the good life is and what it means to be truly happy, we're gonna have to let Jesus redefine these things for us. So that way, his words don't go in one ear and out the other. That way, it's like, if Jesus truly is the wisest man who's ever lived, and he's offering us this this invitation, he's offering us this instruction, why would we try to hold it together with some of the foolishness of this world that's caused so much division, that's caused so much heartache? See, as we listen to Jesus, we hold on to his words, we latch on to them, and we follow his way of living with the grain. This is what it looks like to be kingdom people. This is what it means to be fully alive to God. This is the invitation that Jesus makes. He's saying, come, 
those who are hungry. Come, those who are weary. Come, those who are poor in spirit. Come, those who are burned out and have sought out the endless offerings of this fallen world and come and taste, come and see, come and participate. What an invitation. I pray God would make us receptive to that. I'm gonna pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that your way is not our way, your thoughts are not our thoughts, that yours are high above us and we are so foolish and we can't help it. We're so foolish to think that we know better than you. We're, we insist on our own version of the good life which is, is counterproductive to the kind of life you would want to, to offer us in Christ. And so we thank you that Jesus has both given us insight and is providing this picture of this new life, but he's also the means in which we get to enjoy this and the way that we get to lay hold of this kingdom life now. God, would you shape us? Would you make us disciples who are formed after Jesus, who cling to his words and live our lives in step with Jesus in every aspect that we would get to taste and see and experience this good life? And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm excited about this. I think that this is gonna be a fantastic sermon series. I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but Jesus has a lot that he wants to do with us in this church, and the Sermon on the Mount is one of the places where God's gonna get to work. So let's buckle up, let's do it.